This is Our American Stories. Americans have been celebrating George Washington's birthday on February 22nd since 1885. But in 1971, President's Day was enacted, which celebrates the births of Washington and Lincoln every third Monday in February. We plan on helping that situation a bit by giving President Washington, the father of our country, not his own day, but his own hour. The poet Robert Frost once remarked that George Washington was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Washington could have become King of America if he wanted to. Instead, America's first general became the United States' first two-term civilian president, something a world familiar only with hereditary monarchs had never seen. Napoleon, as he lay dying on the island of St. Helena, condemned for having seized the power of an emperor, complained that his critics wanted me to be another Washington. Underneath the man who has become namesake to thousands of small towns, high schools, the nation's capital, and the 42nd state, whose image is reproduced endlessly on coins, currency, and stamps, and a huge bust carved into a South Dakota mountain, we find a man seeking to belong, longing for acceptance and respect. Parson Mason Weems, an Episcopal clergyman and sometime bookseller, is the source of some of those pious stories about George Washington, like chopping down his father's cherry tree. The real George Washington is born in a modest farmhouse in Northern Virginia on February 22, 1732. The first child of a middle-aged father and a second wife. In the mid-18th century, Virginia is a province of the British Empire. Its sparse population of mostly British descent see themselves as Englishmen subjects of the king. But the British see Virginians as crude colonists, second class in every way. Washington's father Augustine dies when he is 11. George inherits a farmhouse left in trust to his mother Mary. But the bulk of Augustine Washington's estate, including the sizable plantation at Mount Vernon, goes to his older half-brother Lawrence. Unlike Lawrence, who's educated in England, George's formal education ends when he is 14. Lawrence convinces Mary Washington to send George to him so that he can teach the boy the ways of society. I wish you were my brother, not my half-brother. I feel all of you is my brother. <laughs> so I am, George. Forever. As George's surrogate father, Lawrence offers guidance and contact with the wealthiest and most prominent family in Virginia, the Fairfax family which he has married into. The rough young man learns his social graces by quietly watching and imitating those in Lawrence's charmed circle. Acutely aware of his own lack of sophistication, fearful of social missteps, Washington develops lifelong habits of social reserve. He studies books on manners. He reads English magazines and translations of Roman classics so that he would have something to say at dinner parties. But to become one of the elite, George needs to make money. By 17, he is working as a frontier surveyor in the Appalachian Mountains. At 18, he buys his first piece of land. Washington, like all Virginians, needed land. 
Land was the most valuable commodity uh, in an in agrarian society. Uh, they needed land to replenish their tobacco fields, which wore out in four to eight years. They needed land for speculative purposes, for a rainy day. It was the one form of inheritance they could pass on that would be of great value to their offspring. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains bears a wilderness of inconceivable magnitude and unimaginable richness. I never knew it was so big, so rich, so green and untouched. Wherever we go, I feel that we're the first to ever walk this land. Indians are out here somewhere. Few Americans have seen it, but the British crown wants it. So does their arch rivals, the French, and both have to reckon with the Indians who live there. Washington has surveyed it, and in 1754, he comes to fight for it. After all, as a soldier of the British crown, he can rise higher in society than any mere surveyor. He is now 22, six feet three inches tall, a major in the Virginia Regiment, and after years in the backwoods, as tough as the terrain. A smoldering Cold War between England and France, fueled by conflicting land claims on two continents, hits a flashpoint in the Ohio Valley. In Europe, this conflict will be called the Seven Years' War. In North America, it is known as the French and Indian War. Eventually, the French will be driven from America, but at such a cost that the British will raise taxes in America to pay for the fighting. This leads to the American Revolution, in which the French aids America. The French will pay for this with higher taxes, which leads to the French Revolution. Washington is called to the Virginia Governor's Palace in Williamsburg. Now I should like to consult with you upon a matter of great import. The King of France, not satisfied with the vast province of Canada, has decided to make open trespass on British soil. He has sent soldiers into our territory, thus flouting British sovereignty established by God and King. They build forts, trade with our Indians and otherwise encroach upon our sacred rights. I have received orders from His Gracious Majesty to send an emissary demanding that they depart. Sir. Before you recommend someone, sir, I think you should know that the French are a treacherous people. This emissary will be in considerable danger. Yes, sir, but... Which is why I need someone who can travel hundreds of miles through unknown mountains, has experience with the Indians, and is possessed of a hearty constitution. You were about to recommend someone, sir? Your description fits only me, sir. Washington is sent out on his first assignment. His job is to lead 139 men to the forks of the Ohio River and build a fort there before the French can. His only military preparation consists of fencing lessons and having read two books on the art of war. But the French beat Washington to his goal, and now his Indian scouts tell him that the French are sending a party to ambush him. Washington leads his men on a night march towards the French camp, where he finds 40 men sleeping. At dawn, he strikes. A few minutes later, 10 French, including a French ambassador, and four Englishmen are dead. The French court brands him an assassin. The French and Indian War has begun. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington.
is our American story, celebrating the life of George Washington. As always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Let's return to George Washington's story. Later at the Battle of Fort Duquesne, Washington demonstrates that what he lacks in strategic ability, he more than makes up for in sheer bravery, when he has two horses shot from under him. Three years later, again at Fort Duquesne, two groups of Virginia militiamen stumble upon one another in the wilderness and mistakenly open fire on each other. Washington rides between opposing lines, knocking away guns on both sides with his sword. 14 are killed, 26 are wounded, Washington isn't touched. At 24, he returns a hero to his fellow Virginians. But when he seeks a commission as a full British officer, not just a Virginia colonial officer, he is rudely rejected. Your arrogance defies me, sir. We are at war with France. And you, sir, were the man who fired the shot that started this war. He resigns from the militia in protest. Good day, sir. Denied advancement in the British Army, he realizes that if he is to make his mark in the world, he must do it as a civilian. What's so touching about his experience of the French and Indian War is that it was the making of him in a way that he did not expect. Instead of being the making of him as an element of the glittering gentleman's world of the British Virginia Empire, it was the making of his experience of human vicissitude and the forging of his character and I suspect the beginnings of those personal feelings which made it possible for him to be a rebel leader where once all he had wanted was to be an imperial guard. Then in 1752 after having found the town of Alexandria, Virginia, George's half-brother and father figure Lawrence dies of tuberculosis. George becomes the owner of Mount Vernon. He's got lots of land, but little money to work it with, and he is alone. For 10 years he has wooed a succession of young women, all of whom reject him, some because he isn't rich enough, and some because they are put off by his restrained personality. Then George is introduced to Martha Custis, a 27-year-old widow and mother of two, Martha is five foot tall with a pleasant appearance, is slightly plump, shy, and serious. Universally liked and easy to talk to. She is also one of the most wealthy, marriageable women in all of Virginia. Her husband, Daniel Custis, has left her 17,000 acres of tobacco, hundreds of slaves, and several farms. I feel warm and at peace here in your dear presence. Forgive me, I don't know why I've been talking so much upon such early acquaintance. I'm usually more reserved than ladies. I too feel safe and at peace in your company, sir. And that is all I need to know at this moment. The two only spend 20-some hours together before George proposes marriage. Here they come! Within the year, they are married having spent only 15 days in one another's company. In marrying Martha Custis, 
Washington finally enters the world of the Virginia elite. She was uh, extremely supportive of him. She complimented him in many ways. Uh, she was, um, she socialized more easily than Washington did, liked to talk uh, with friends and greet them, whereas Washington was, I think Washington was a little bit shy. Um, and he was, his size was intimidating. He used to frighten the children. But we're told that Mrs. Washington grabbed him by his lapels and pulled him right down to her face when she wanted to talk to him. Well, my future is to be a farmer and a husband. There'll be no British general telling me how to plow my field or love my wife. Credit extended by British tobacco agents enables Virginia planters to live opulently. But credit also puts them in debt and constant droughts keep devastating crop production. As tobacco prices fall, their debts mount. George and Martha face a dilemma. Washington faces economic collapse, but he's equally fearful of what others might think if he's unable to maintain his style of life. If I economize, Washington writes in a letter, such an alteration in the system of my living will create suspicions of a decay in my fortune, and such a thought the world must not harbor. Image is all important. Washington staffs his residence with 14 servants and seven slaves. But unlike many of his contemporaries who defend slavery, Washington believes that slavery debases both slave and slaveholder. Washington has the resources to pull himself completely out of debt if he sells all of his slaves. But he says, I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. Jonathan Alton, Washington's longtime plantation hand, attempts to sell off the slaves. Washington responds immediately. I gave you no authority to sell any of our people. Colonel, you instructed me to cut costs because of our drought losses. I've told you before, Mr. Alton, I will not break up families. There will be no sale. By not selling slaves without your permission, we can go bankrupt. Virginia law, of course, does not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but Washington does. Washington treats them like family, which is why after they're released following his death, the former slaves come back and take care of Mount Vernon and his and Martha's grave. Of all the founding fathers, Washington is the only one to free his slaves. But Washington is broke. He sees his and his fellow planters' problems as one of dependence on their British agents, the men who sell Virginia's tobacco in Europe and who purchase finished goods on their behalf in London. He was persuaded that they palmed off the shoddiest goods on colonials. All of this simply intensified his sense of anti-colonial discrimination, this time within the context of the imperial commercial system. Although Washington believes he grows the best tobacco in Virginia, he decides to stop growing the labor-intensive, soil-depleting crop and grows grains instead. He is soon selling his produce in Alexandria and buys finished goods from local importers and American manufacturers instead of buying through London agents. Within a decade, he is out of debt and a firm believer in American economic independence. As the British Parliament levies one burdensome tax after another on the colonies, Washington begins to see advantages in American political independence as well. 
and when British troops sail into Boston in 1768, Washington sees them as nothing more than tax collectors in red coats. Soon, Washington joins Patrick Henry as one of the most influential members of the Virginia House of Burgesses. But along with his appointment, also comes a learning curve. The first time that Washington ran, he neglected the usual practice of uh, treating the uh, voters with, with uh, alcoholic beverages on election day, and he lost. The next time he was careful to arrange for some of his supporters to see that the, uh, the bar was open and plentifully supplied, and he won. As relations between Britain and the colonies deteriorate, Virginia sends Washington as one of its delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes one year later, fighting breaks out between the Massachusetts Minutemen and the British regulars. President recognizes Mr. Adams, Massachusetts. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. It is no exaggeration to say that between 1774 and 1777, Independence Hall in Philadelphia glows with more intellectual candle power than has ever burned in a single place before or since. Ben Franklin, John Adams, his cousin Sam, John Jay, the men of the Virginia delegation, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Edmund Pendleton, and then there is George Washington. If he'd had the kind of raw ambition that he'd showed in the Seven Years' War, the leading revolutionaries of 1775 wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have thought of making him a commander of the Continental Army. They feared a man on horseback. They feared their own army. And the idea of having an ambitious person would have horrified them. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington. is our American stories we continue with the life of George Washington we will be left defenseless gentlemen she didn't speak much in debates at the Continental Congress he did not have a strong voice he wasn't an orator but then neither were Franklin or Jefferson I don't think Washington was intimidated by the power of the other intellects there but he knew himself he knew he wasn't an original thinker what Washington could do was express himself with his presence, his uniform, and his habit of command. To symbolize the depth of his commitment to the cause of resistance, Washington arrives in Philadelphia wearing his splendid old blue and buff Virginia military uniform. He wore the uniform because he knew he looked good in it and because he wanted to be commander-in-chief. And he knew that if other people could see him in that uniform, 
they would see him as he saw himself in command. John Adams nominates 43-year-old Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, which will wage a war for national independence. What is required now is one able man to build and to lead this new uh, Continental Army. And who do you propose of the Massachusetts delegates should lead this force? I have but one gentleman in mind, known to all of us. Mr. President, I propose as Commander-in-Chief our most honorable and esteemed delegate, the good gentleman from Virginia, Colonel George Washington. He is elected unanimously. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me, but I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington sees his appointment as one ordained by God. Your Continental Army awaits you at Cambridge, sir. In his letters, he refers to the war as the cause, with cause always capitalized, recognizing God's providence in their resistance. John Adams prophetically writes that Washington could become one of the most important characters in the world. Washington accepts the assignment, knowing that if he fails, he would lose everything he struggled so hard to gain. He would lose Mount Vernon. Then Congress approves the Declaration of Independence, resolution asserting America's right to choose their own government, absolving all allegiance to the British crown. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political band which have connected them with another. It may have been Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will most certainly hang separately. But it is Washington's neck that will feel the noose first. There is no turning back. When George Washington got to Cambridge to assume his new command of the Continental Army, he, all of his fears were probably reinforced. What he found, instead of an inspired band of revolutionaries, was a disorganized, dirty, undisciplined mob. I'd flog the lot of them. And he was supposed to command them and make them an army and expel the British from North America and secure independence for the American people. Yes, what is it? Sir, the British are landing on Long Island. The battle is upon us. New York, 1776. Washington is outnumbered two to one. He grew during the war as a military commander, but at the beginning, um, he showed a considerable degree of incompetency. For instance, at the Battle of Long Island, he left the end of his line open. The British were able to run around it, then nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington loses New York, which begins a succession of losses up and down Manhattan Island. A skirmish at Harlem Heights, a defeat at White Plains, a disaster for Washington at Fort Washington, another disaster at Fort Lee. By November, his army has almost evaporated. Men have left or deserted to bring in harvests. Thousands have been captured or killed. Many have fallen ill, and the British are chasing his remnant of 5,000 across the New Jersey plain. By the end of 1776, the Continental Army was melting away. Uh, the jig seemed just about up. Washington 
was in despair. He started to talk about having to go hide out in the West. To his brother, Washington writes, I think the game is pretty near up. By December of 1776, the Continental cause was in very serious trouble. Washington's uh, soldiers were about to go home. Their enlistments were expiring. Many colonists were beginning to take up the British offer of pardon. They were going over to the enemy. The revolution was unraveling. And then, suddenly, at the very end of the year, in, in a bold and daring move, uh, Washington, with his small remaining army, swooped down on Trenton, New Jersey. There are few places in America where history pivots around the character of a single man. Washington's crossing the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey, is one of them. When Washington wins here, the tide turns with him. The watchword Washington has chosen for the Trenton attack is victory or death. 2,400 American troops crossed the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm on Christmas night, Captain. 1776. This weather will wet the men's powder. Our muskets won't fire. Then you must use your bayonet, Sergeant. Trenton must be taken. Yes, Many things go wrong, but the genius of Washington's attack lies in the date of its execution. In their barracks, the enemy has been celebrating Christmas with rum and ale. As night comes on, so does drunkenness, then sleep. At Trenton, Washington had to try something new. Conventional military tactics had failed him. He remembered the guerrilla tactics of the Indians from the French and Indian War. So he and his men snuck up on the sleeping Hessian soldiers. Washington slipping across the Delaware, taking advantage of Hessians who had had too much to drink, surprising them in the morning and winning a very small victory. It was not a great thing in military terms, but it was very important to the survival of the revolution. The legends of barefoot soldiers leaving bloody footprints in the snow are not fiction. The tales of starvation, disease, malnutrition, and exposure at Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 are not exaggerations. One soldier recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Even after makeshift cabins are built and the men are out of the freezing wind and snow, each sentry still has to borrow clothes from his bunkmate before his turn at guard. As the guard rotates, so does the clothing. But there is one thing not lacking in the American camps, rum. It is calculated that rebel troops are consuming a bottle a day per man. When enlistments expire, Washington goes before his troops and offers a bounty to all who step forward and re-enlist. The drums rolled. No one stepped forward. Washington couldn't believe it. He was dismayed. He was... He was shocked. He was desperate. So he marched up and down the line, begging, pleading, conjoling his men to stay, telling them that the future of America rested with them. The drums rolled again. This time, one man stepped out, two men stepped out. And at the end, everyone who could stayed on. 
He could lead. He could inspire his men. They admired him. He looked the picture of a general. He was a responsible, careful tactician. I don't suppose any military genius, but he had the genius to lead. And when we come back, our final segment, The Life of George Washington, America's First President and the Father of Our Nation. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our podcasts and to listen to all that we do. More after these messages. And now the final segment in our hour-long celebration of the life of George Washington, our nation's first president and the father of our country. Let's continue where we left off. Deeply feeling the plight of his men, Washington constantly hounds the Continental Congress for supplies, trying to shame them by appealing to their sense of patriotism. Congress's typical response is to give Washington permission to commandeer what he needs from those living near his stationed troops. Washington refuses this invitation to rob his fellow citizens at the point of a bayonet, arguing that to do so will alienate the very people in whose name the struggle has been undertaken. A struggle also exists with his generals. Washington has as much trouble with some of them as he does with the British. Men like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, men who'd been officers in the British Army, thought Washington was a bumpkin, someone who didn't know anything about an army or how to run a war. And they caused George a tremendous amount of trouble. They conspired, they talked behind his back, they spoke to members of Congress, they tried to discredit him, but in the end, he met them with patience and persistence, and their own incompetence ruined him. And George survived, and they didn't. Throughout his career, he appears touched by God. On horseback, he leads charges into the thick of battle, willfully exposing himself to cannon and musket fire, strolling through a hail of shot. Yet not once does a bullet or shrapnel ever even graze him. In April 1781, a British warship sails up the Potomac and trains her guns on Washington's cherished home, Mount Vernon. Most of Washington's Virginia now lay under British control. The governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, begs Washington to come home and save his state. Washington declines. When Jefferson called upon Washington to defend his home and his state, he was talking to a Washington who no longer existed. Washington's allegiance was no longer to the country he had grown up in, English Virginia but was an allegiance to the future. Washington's record on the battlefield is three wins, nine losses, and one tie, which is no source of pride. If we succeed, we have a chance to end the war here. But the best battle to win is the last one. Surprise and terror will be your main weapons. And Washington endures long enough to win it, the three-week siege at Yorktown. May Providence be with you. 
This is where the Revolutionary War ends on October 19, 1781. When British General Cornwallis asks for the terms, Washington replies that the same honor should be granted to Cornwallis's surrendering army as was granted to the American garrison of Charleston. The point is not lost on Cornwallis. When Charleston fell to the British in 1780, the British refused to grant the Americans the honors of war, treating them as rebels and not as a legitimate army. Washington now demands the same humiliation of Cornwallis. But Cornwallis claims illness and sends a stand-in to Sir. the surrender ceremony. Earl Cornwallis is indisposed. I am second in command. In an attempt at insult, the British stand-in tries to hand over Cornwallis's sword to a French officer who had fought with the Americans. But the Frenchman refuses, directing him instead to Washington. Washington also refuses. He orders the Englishman to surrender Cornwallis's sword to General Lincoln. General Lincoln will accept the surrender. Who was the humiliated American commander at Charleston. Serve my sword. During his campaign against the British, Washington is always outnumbered, typically outgunned, and always short on supplies, weapons, wagons, horses, and boats. Yet he repeatedly slips the British noose, choosing strategic retreat over honorable defeat. He doggedly wears his enemy down. The British lose the war, not so much because the Americans under Washington defeat them on the battlefield, but because General George Washington does not give up or go away. But Washington's most important performance has yet to occur. Let me set the scene. It's the end of the war. Uh, Washington's generals and his high staff officers are disgruntled. They haven't been paid. They don't trust the Congress. They're not so sure that it's such a good idea to give over control of this new nation to this bunch of squabbling uh, politicians. Many among them wanted Washington to assume greater power, in fact, maybe dictatorial power. His officers plan a meeting at their headquarters on the night of March 15, 1783. They know how you feel, sir. So they do not want you there at the secret meeting. They will debate a move against Congress to demand their back pay, at gunpoint, if necessary. Washington knows he has to confront them. He begins writing a speech. He agonizes over every sentence and every word. He was ripped apart inside. He had suffered with these men. He'd watched them die. He'd watched them be wounded for their country. He knew what they had given up. He knew how Congress had mistreated them. And a part of him was attracted by their offer to be a kind of king. And he knew for certain that if he gave in to their offer, if he gave in to the allure of power, not only would he betray his country, but he would also betray the reputation and the honor that had been so hard for him to attain. He rides alone to the meeting. As he enters the building, the angry officers are stunned. But he sees no smiles, and there is no applause as he stands before them and begs them not to open the floodgates of civil war, which would surely drown the new nation in blood. If you will not lead us, sir, stand aside! I'll not stand aside. And if you try to silence me, you are asking for a nation in which freedom of speech is taken away. He knows he is failing, 
so he decides to read a copy of a letter from Congress, once again promising payment. It might work where his eloquence has not. He holds the letter in front of him and begins to read. I have a letter from a member of Congress. But something is wrong. And they are trying the officers draw closer. Then, Washington takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on. No one in the audience has ever seen him in his glasses before. The officers are shocked. Washington looks out at the men and speaks. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have... not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. With this, he brings them to tears. He steps down from the stage and moves slowly towards the door. The conspiracy collapses. All that is left are the formalities of history. He knew that his glasses would be a symbol of his own weakness and vulnerability. And he hoped, he hoped that this would persuade his men that by betraying their country in this manner, they were also betraying him personally. It's high political acting, but what he did was he staged that performance in order to rescue control of the new government from a disgruntled military and to return it to civilian power where it belongs. And in that moment, we have fused the extraordinary political performance of George Washington, the ambitious would-be leader, and the principles about politics and about civilian rule, which restrained him even in the moment of his highest acting. Nine months later, Washington surrenders his commission and his army to Congress. The grand irony of his life, which in the beginning was based on acquisition, is that he did not secure the reputation he sought until he gave something up, power. President Abraham Lincoln once said, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. The path of George Washington's life is one from frontier to capital. It is one of our greatest American stories. And of all those who helped create the new nation, none are more deserving of the title, Founding Father. And there you have it, an hour on the life of George Washington. And if you can, folks, go to ouramericannetwork.org, get the link, send it to your friends. When they're driving around, they can hear this story. They need to hear and know this story. My goodness, they're not teaching it in high schools in America. They're certainly not teaching it in colleges. Well, there's one college that is, and that's Hillsdale College. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks there who teach the things that matter in life, the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their free and terrific online courses. I wanted to leave, though, with one of my favorite books and a couple of quotes. And read this when you can. Get it on audio. It's great. David McCullough's 1776. In part one, the opening chapter starts with a quote from General George Washington. The date, January 14, 1776. And he had these words to say. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. McCullough closes with these words about Washington. 
He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment, but experience had been his great teacher from boyhood, and in this his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. And that's the thing about Washington, that perseverance. Without George Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. As Nathaniel Greene foresaw as the war went on, quote, George Washington will be the deliverer of his own country. This is Lee Habib, George Washington's story, America's founding story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today, we're going to tell you the story of carrots. By the way, periodically, we tell these odd stories. Candy corn is one of our favorites. The, the story of the toilet. By the way, there was a day in American life when most people, nobody had them. And the story of the beard, the history of the beard in the United States. Today, we give you Jesse and his take on the story and history of carrots. In today's fast-paced world full of technology and entertainment, it's easy to overlook some of the most basic elements of life that we all take for granted sometimes. Take, for example, the humble carrot. First domesticated by ancient empires somewhere around what we know as Iran and Afghanistan over 5,000 years ago, this great little root spread across the world. From their arrival to ancient Greece and Rome, to their expansion in medieval Europe, carrots were often used for their medicinal properties. Romans famously thought of them as aphrodisiacs. Brought to America in 1607 with the first settlers who landed in Jamestown, American cuisine did not include carrots for a long time. In fact, no vegetable enjoyed less regard as an ingredient in 19th century America than the carrot. You see, carrots were easy to grow, and perhaps more importantly, a favorite food among cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, horses, and children. From there, it was a natural progression onto the dinner plate. There are over 100 species of edible carrots today, and until the 17th century, The only edible types of carrots had black, white, red, and purple colors. The orange carrots we know today were created by selective breeding in the Netherlands as a tribute to the royal family known as the House of Orange. 87% of the carrot is water, and it's one of the most sugary vegetables in the world, second only to the beet. But did you know about the secret carrot within the carrot? If we carefully bite our carrot horizontally using care not to penetrate the center of the carrot. One can negotiate to peel away the outer layer, exposing the sweet and tender inner core of the carrot. If you've never seen it, try it out. Set aside the outer layer of the carrot so the flavor doesn't interfere with the enjoyment of that succulent carrot tender. It's perfectly healthy for dogs to eat carrots, and apparently it's okay for cats too. But I've never seen a cat eating a carrot, have you? The world's longest carrot was measured to be over 19 feet long, 
and the heaviest grown in 1998, weighing in at 19 pounds. The average number of carrots one person eats in their lifetime is 10,866. The city of Holtville, California is often called the carrot capital of the world. They have an annual carrot festival that dates back more than 70 years. Really, there is no place like Hopeville. People compliment us quite a bit on our parade. Uh, the parade has always been a big tradition. If you went to school here, you were in the parade, in the carrot festival parade. Well, it's good for all the local businesses. I, I know a lot of the local business owners, and this is one of the weekends that they prepare for all year long, and I think it, it's a really good thing. It brings a lot of money into town. Recent world production of carrots was at 42.7 million tons, with China producing 48% of the world total. Other major producers were the European Union, Uzbekistan, Russia, the United States, and Ukraine. Here's Matthew Martin, a carrot farmer from Chico, California. The biggest misnomer is that you have to have sandy soil to grow carrots. Everyone thinks you have to have sandy soil. You don't. I actually, actually my soil is a class 3 heavy clay. Um... So to overcome the heavy clay, you just have to prepare the soil right. And so with carrots, it's all about fine-tilled soil, um, deep and fertile. I like to make sure I get at least a good 8-inch deep till. Uh, I'm really happy if I get a good 12-inch till on it. I use a feather meal for nitrogen, uh, which is nice. It doesn't break down too fast. Uh, carrots will get hairy roots and split roots if you've got uh, too much available nitrogen. And uh, the feather meal takes uh, a little bit, breaks down a little bit slower. Um, and then, of course, I always do a, a soil test to see if I need uh, phosphorus. Right now, my soil is real good in phosphorus, so I don't have to add any phosphorus. Um, and then I uh, fertigate with uh, potassium because I've got a, my soil here. Soil here is, is low in potassium and it'll bind potassium up. So I have to actually irrigate with potassium uh, you know, every month to, to, to keep the potassium available. They throw all their energy at the beginning to grow in the tops. And then right now the, the roots are just about full sized. They'll grow, still grow. Um, but as, it, uh, as the season gets colder, the tops are going to start to die off. Pull all that energy out of the tops, store it into carrots, convert all that plant energy into sugar. That's what makes our carrots super sweet. Among all vegetables, the carrot has the largest content of vitamin A beta carotene, and one large carrot will give you 104% of the daily recommended dose. They're a great source of fiber, and they can repair damaged cells, serve as an antiseptic, cure eye diseases, restore liver function, and regulate blood pressure. Just one carrot gives you enough energy to walk a mile, but if you eat too many carrots, you might get a condition called cardonemia, which turns your skin orange. But carrots will not give you night vision. This popular myth was used by the British Royal Air Force during the Second World War to explain why their pilots suddenly started kicking butt and killing Germans in the sky. But it was actually a disguise to hide top-secret advances in radar technology and the use of red lights on instrument panels. And then, of course, there are baby carrots. Taking fully grown carrots and cutting them down to a smaller size was the brainchild of California carrot farmer Mike Yurosek in 1986. Known as the father of the baby carrot, Mike was also the uncle of actor Gary Lockwood. And you might be amazed to learn that a lot of people still don't know that the baby carrot is basically a total lie. You see, when God or nature or the state of California creates a deformed carrot, they give it a little blender makeover and a carrot shaping machine. 
It comes out the other side looking like a cute little baby carrot. Saving farmers in America thousands of tons of waste. It's what we like to eat when we pretend we're eating healthy by dipping them in buckets of ranch. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Carrots are long, orange, straight and round. You can buy them at the store, but they come from the ground. They taste good on almost anything. You can chop them up, put them in salads and cakes and carrot-flavored ice cream. But carrots also have nutritious properties. They're high in dietary fibers and This is Our American Story, and it's time for our Rule of Law series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this story, one that may not seem like a story on the Rule of Law, but is. Here's Dave Grohl, the frontman of the Foo Fighters, and earlier, a pretty unknown drummer who joined a pretty unknown band called Nirvana. When I joined the band, they had this demo that sounded amazing. It sounded huge, and it sounded different than the things that they had done before. And everyone talked about Butch, 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 Butch. Butch Vig, who owns Smart Studios, a recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin, where Nirvana recorded the demo for their breakout album, Nevermind. Bands like Death Cab for Cutie and Beck did some stuff here. Freddie Johnson did a lot of stuff here. And a lot. The list is pretty extensive. If you go online, you'll see this, this huge list. You're listening to a guy named Phil Parhamovich, and he's saying here because he and I were literally there talking inside the now defunct Smart Studios. And that list he mentioned of who's also recorded here. Includes the Smashing Pumpkins, their debut and breakout album Gish was done here, as was Fall Out Boys, and Soul Asylum, Everclear, Jimmy World, and Tegan and Sarah are also on that list. But when Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana recorded here, I think it was pretty basic. It was just a pretty basic building. I think it was built in the late 1800s as a Jewish grocery store at the time. When Butch Vig first came in here, I imagine it was kind of still, you know, in some state like that. So this was the room where, you know, Kurt Cobain and all those guys did their thing. Billy Corgan with the Smashing Pumpkins, and that's where Butch would have sat and recorded them. They were doing a lot here, starting to kind of create that grunge sound, and Butch was really, really that guy. A guy from Madison, Wisconsin, of all places, shaping the 90s iconic grunge sound. It's most identified with a city 1,925 miles away, Seattle. How did that happen? Somehow, you know, I think when you're in the scene, you just pay attention to the albums that you like, how they sound. They probably liked what was coming out of this studio and sought him out. 
conveniently, Butch Vig didn't have to seek out a studio when he recorded himself. Well, he'd started Garbage here. He started his band Garbage, and they were doing really well, and they moved to L.A., like all big bands do. Now, strangely enough, this story isn't about Butch Vig or about any of these famous people who were in this totally nondescript studio that doesn't have a single solitary landmark or sign marking all the fame that was created here. And not a zip. And why are we talking to this Phil guy, by the way? He's not famous. At least not yet. So, uh, I... The weird thing is, I had seen it, I, I'd known about it. The studio's legendary. I knew about Smart Studios, and I kept like trying to find it. And I, I had been passing it on the road a lot without knowing what it was, because it's this ugly, derelict building. You know, it's like the windows are all bricked up. It looks like just crack house or abandoned place. You know, and I didn't really realize it was that. And finally, someone I think pointed out, "No, that was Smart Studios right there." I was like, "Huh?" And so the next time I was driving by. I had had money saved up. I had around hundred grand or so, and I was trying to find a house. And Phil, who's a musician, thought to himself, "Why not live in a famous recording studio?" And he was going to until the police pulled him over for a seatbelt violation. So he threw me in the back of the car, and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart. And found my cash, and uh, got extremely excited. At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, you know, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash. So I'm thinking, oh wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? And what's going on here? This is the story of Phil Parhamovich. Born and raised in the Cleveland area, played football, really got into art and music, started recording music, kind of making fake albums with my brothers, making the album art, and we'd get up on the bed and do these fake concerts and stuff. And uh, really was just a sports kid, an art kid, and somehow was like, had the perfect combination of both. It was a mix that some people couldn't quite understand. I started going to school for, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to do like Marvel comics. When I was a kid, I had established maybe 200 superheroes. And we would laminate them with scotch tape and cut them out and play with them. It was our toys, you know. Did you not have much money growing up? Yeah, we were poor. My parents were divorced after about sixth grade. My mom wasn't home very much. She worked, and then she went out after work, and uh, I raised my sister pretty much alone. And whatever was in the fridge, we had, I think we had a box of frozen pork chops that we ate off of for a while, and, and uh, it was pretty tough. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. A childhood that's definitely not ideal, but also one that can definitely inspire creativity like Phil's. You almost have to to get by creatively finding ways to feed yourself and have something to play with. So I was going to art school in Nova Scotia at the time, and my father became an accountant, 
and he was doing the taxes for the video director of the Browns and they needed an intern. They just hired Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach, and they needed an intern because they were going to do their own TV show in-house. They wanted somebody with some art school experience or at least some experience with doing art and graphics. Each segment had a graphic going into it and they wanted somebody who would kind of have an idea of how to do that and so they hired me to kind of take the TV show responsibility and they hired another guy to do more of the football stuff and it turned out I ended up knowing more about football than anybody in the department so I did all the football stuff shooting practices and editing the tape and but I also did the TV show and everything from interviewing the players to building the sets to editing the segments together and all that so I was totally into it. It was a cool job, except it was the schedule was such a grind. I mean, there was one day a week we didn't sleep. We just worked right into the next day, and Saturdays and Sundays we worked. So from just before the start of training camp until past the end of the season, a couple weeks, there was no days off. And one day a week you didn't sleep. The other days a week we'd work until about 1 in the morning, get up and start working again about 7. So it was a grind. I worked there for two years. And after those two years, I uh, I had had enough, and I, I was really getting more into music. And at that point, I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I had gone to school with a dude who was in a band who was becoming very successful in Minneapolis, and that scene was really blowing up there, Soul Asylum and The Replacements and Husker Du. And my friend's band, The Hang-Ups, was right in the midst of all that stuff and knew all those guys and was playing shows with them. So... I quit and moved out to Minneapolis and started pursuing music. And then I would work in the spring in NFL Europe. So I'd spend about four or five months in NFL Europe making money and then coming back and launching into my music stuff. Phil also searched for his dream country house. He'd buy one, fix it up, conclude that it wasn't his dream house, and sell it. This is how he accidentally saved up the $100,000 cash that he didn't keep in a bank but with him and why the police were able to take it from him. I'm not really that into our system of how we do things. I didn't see why a CEO should be making a bunch of money off my money when I could hide it just as well. And when we come back, we continue with our Rule of Law series and what happened to those hard-earned dollars in Phil Parhamovich's car The cops were interested in that $92,000, and they thought they had every right to take it. And when we come back, more of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. Visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org, and make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send you the top five stories of the week. We can either listen to them or read the transcription. ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know. And this one, well, this is just as good as it gets. We return to musician Phil Parhamovich's story of trying to buy the legendary Smart Studios where Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, and so many others recorded, and how Phil's preference to keep his cash with him was treated like a crime. Worked out a contract, sent it to him, he signed it, okayed it, I gave him the earnest money, and I think in a couple days, two or three days, I left on tour. Here I had all of my money in this box, and it was a lot of money. And the apartment I lived in, they had the boiler room for the whole building in my unit, and they would just allow themselves in whenever they wanted, just like no knocking, no ringing the doorbell, just like, hello, we're here to service the boiler. So I'm getting ready to leave on this little tour, I'm like, well, here I've got this studio under contract, so like I'm super excited about that. My life is just like, woo And all of my money is not really being able to be hid very well. And I'm like, well, I could bring it in speaker. I'll have it with me on stage. So I leave on this trip, and I'm starting out in this blizzard, this horrible blizzard. And I was going like 20 miles an hour for six hours through Iowa. Like I was, wasn't moving at all. And I finally stopped, and I stopped on the, the side of the road by a hotel, slept there for a few hours, and I got back up in the morning. I missed my first show in Denver because I just couldn't make it that far. And I was driving on to the next show in Wyoming, and I passed this police officer on the right-hand side of the road. I could tell he had just stopped someone that said canine unit on his car. And uh, I know a little bit how they are. like They like to search people whenever they can, but... I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going under the speed limit in the slow lane behind a truck at that time. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom really bad, so I was like really looking for that next stop. There were high winds on the highway. I'm driving along, and that cop races up alongside of me and is just studying me for a long time. At that point, I kind of felt like prey. Finally, pulls me over. He comes up and immediately says, could you please come back into my car I'd like to ask you a bunch of questions and um, it's like okay well I don't see see why not you know he said he was stopping me for for my seatbelt he saw I didn't have my seatbelt on I was like well this is kind of strange I just don't, don't have my seatbelt on this guy is obviously super aggressive we go back into his car so he starts asking me all these questions well, where are you from where are you going you know what what are you doing what band is it where are you playing so I'm just answering these questions you know they're simple questions and to each question he's opposing them he's like well that that can't be true how can that be true and he's like manipulating every question into this kind of doubting thing you know and after a while it started to get just confusing and kind of strange and it just seemed like a real head game was happening so finally he says well I want to search your car with with my dog and uh I was like, well, that's fine. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I don't, I don't do drugs. And so I was like, that, that's fine. So he brings his dog up, and he had three tennis balls in his car door. He grabs one of them, puts it in his hand under his sleeve. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And he walks up to my car, and this dog is, is just a dumb dog. It's, it's really, like, not interested in anything. And uh, the dog is just kind of sitting there staring at this officer, and finally the officer is like trying to get the dog interested in the car 
He's doing whatever he can to get the dog interested. The dog has no interest in it. Taking the dog, bringing his nose right up against the door and stuff, the dog's not doing anything. And finally he takes this, this ball and starts to like jerk this ball up in the air to get this dog to play with the ball. So the dog starts to jump. And then he immediately, wastes no time, goes to the other side of the car and makes the dog jump again on the other side. It was clear that he, at this point, wanted to get on videotape from his car, the dog jumping around my car. So he comes back, he's like, well, my dog reacted to your car. Like, this is escalating. This is getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm um, like, I, you know, how did a seatbelt turn into, all of a sudden you're searching my car, you're faking it with this ball. Now I'm getting thrown into the back of your car. What's going on here? It got I, really scary at that point. I felt like completely no power to do anything. And he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart, just like ripping things, you know. Finally, he started to take apart all of my music stuff and found my cash, got extremely excited, got like hyperventilating excited, and came back and was like, well, I found this cash and blah, 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 and like, whose is it? At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash, weapons, blah, 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 multiple times. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? It implied to me that it was illegal to carry cash. He grouped it right in with the drugs and weapons. The rule of implication over the rule of law, the actual law. It made it seem like this could have been illegal. I didn't really know. And really all I started thinking about was my daughter and being able to see her when I get done with this tour. And she means the world to me, you know? And like any time without her, I was like, oh my God, am I gonna be thrown in jail for carrying cash? And I just wanted to get back to her at this point. So I said, well, the speakers aren't mine. And I lied. Then all these other policemen showed up, I think about three or four cars worth, and they were like high-fiving and stuff about the money and laughing and joking. I honestly felt like I was in a dream, and I like more than once pinched myself. I was like, God, if this is a dream, like please wake up, like what is going on? And here I'm watching like my life savings being taken, you know, stuff that I've worked so hard for. So anyways, the cops are like done with the search and they didn't find anything. And it was so funny. They were like trying to take the spare tire off the spare and like jumping up and down on it. And, you know, like they had ripped everything apart. They thought so for sure they were going to find something in the car. So they didn't. And finally this uh, detective came up, this plainclothes detective. And he says, well, if you'd like to go, you know, you can sign this waiver. Waiving your rights to this whatever we found and then you could just go the waiver said that the money would be given as a gift to the state of wyoming and specifically to their division fighting drugs first who gives money to the government and second why the drug division their stop of phil had nothing to do with drugs he didn't have a single drug on him and he just made it sound like really simple. And I was like, well, so what if I don't sign the waiver? And he didn't make that sound so simple. He wouldn't really tell me. And I kept asking him over and over, maybe five, six times, what happens if I don't sign it? 
and uh, he wouldn't say. He, he had to say something, right? I mean, at first he wouldn't. He just kind of like, well, it'll be bad. It'll be bad, you know. And I was like, well, what exactly will happen if I don't sign it? You know, he's like, well, he kept trying to avoid it, and then finally he's like, well, you know, we're gonna go through your phone. We're gonna go through everything, even more in your car. You're gonna be here for a long time. Probably gonna spend some time in jail. He wouldn't tell me like, why am I gonna be here for long? I was like, well, why would I be here for a long time? You've already gone through my car. What would happen? He's like, well, we got to go back to the court. We're gonna have to get a some kind of other thing to make sure we could, we could search even deeper or whatever. I, it was really unclear, and he made it sound bad. It's hard to in that situation. I was really scared. I was nervous. I had to go to the bathroom really bad for probably over four hours at that point, and that's bad. You know, it's just. It, I was not in a good state. I was tired from not much sleep the morning before. And just from driving for two days, you get kind of, it's hard to focus. And a couple times, I was like, so, if I sign this, I can just go. And he's like, yeah. And honestly, I just, all I thought about was her. If I'm thrown in jail for a month, you know, and people are, are talking and saying bad things about me, like, it's going to affect her and... I was like, okay, I guess it's worth it, you know? If I can just go, the 92 grand, I'll just let go and make a fight for it in the future. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Phil Parhamovich's story. A musician, cash in his speaker, seized by the cops, signs away his right to the money unwillingly, under duress. You'll find out the rest of the story after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of musician Phil Parhamovich's story of the police pressuring him to gift his money to them, despite not charging him with a crime. The last few years, you may have heard of a controversial police practice called civil asset forfeiture. Like most things in life, it started out with good intentions, allowing police to seize the assets of, say, drug kingpins, whom they suspect are using those assets to commit crimes. But today, it's gotten so out of hand that a grandma in Illinois had her car taken from her because her grandson borrowed it, was dealing drugs in it, and she didn't have a clue. When she went to the police with her true story, it was too late. They had already sold their car and profited from the sale before her grandson even appeared before a judge and justice was served. Grandma couldn't get to work and injustice was served to her. And over a single decade, the Drug Enforcement Agency has seized over $3.2 billion in private property from individuals that they never even charged with a crime. Think about that. You can have your property taken from you without ever being charged with anything. There now is a movement afoot to ban civil asset forfeiture and at a minimum have it so that you have to be charged with a crime before your property can be seized, 
And yet, these government officials can be sneaky and creative creatures to get around this whole ugly debate. They've resorted to taking a whole other path, a side road, to the same goal. They're trying to stop civil forfeiture. The governor keeps vetoing certain things and they allowing to have this waiver where they could kind of get around it by saying, okay, well, you weren't convicted of anything, but now you're agreeing to gift the state of Wyoming whatever it is we're seizing. It's just manipulation, you know, it's just, it's thievery. Whether you're doing it with the fine print or whatever, it's the same thing. I didn't go to any of the shows. <laughs> I was, I just lost my life's savings. I was completely despondent, you know, I was just beside myself. I drove away in a state of like, not knowing what had just had happened. I spent the next two hours probably just collecting myself, honestly, trying to like, figure out what do I do here. And so I stopped at a McDonald's, got on the Wi-Fi with my laptop and just started to research. I didn't even know what civil forfeiture was at this point, you know. Now I learned about it. I started to look for attorneys right off the bat. And so I found the Institute for Justice and Dan Albin. His name had come up in a few of the, the cases and I was already late at night so I couldn't call at that point. First thing in the morning I called up, I asked to speak to him, he answered the phone and I told him what had happened and he says, okay, that's very interesting. We want to help you if we can. And from that point on, they didn't formally represent me, but they helped me every step of the way. And they had to vet me. They really had to look deeply into who I was and was my story true. And they came out here and checked everything out. They went through my phone, they went through my wallet, they went through everything. It was very intense. Right away, we started to send letters to the state of Wyoming, requesting the money back, claiming that it was mine. And the state of Wyoming just kind of dragged their feet. They weren't going to do anything. They weren't going to give anything back. And yet, Phil didn't have the luxury of dragging his feet with his pending purchase of smart studios and a home. I contacted the person who I made the contract with because we were set to close and all that. Everything was going to go forward. And I I told him what happened. And he said, okay, well, why don't I give you a nine-month lease? We'll see where your court case is at the end of the, the nine months. And that's happening right now. We're at that kind of end point. We got some dates that we have to get my bank financing papers to him and stuff. But uh, so that was that was very cool of him. And they've basically said to look, if, I mean, obviously we like the guy. We're trying to help him out here. But ultimately, if you can't put this money together, we will, you know, sell it to someone else. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the reality of of real estate he's got property he needs to sell and i mean one of the unfortunate things is because of this i don't think a lot of people knew this place was for sale and now that this is all starting to come out a lot of people do and they're contacting me they're like hey i wanted to buy a place hey i wanted to buy buy that place so we'll see what happens here um i could lose it i could very easily it's to me it's hanging in the balance it's 50 50 But Phil did have one arrow in his quiver that the state of Wyoming didn't know about. They had no idea that I had representation at that time. They thought that he was just some poor Yahoo out there that they could take advantage of. 
And this wasn't just any old representation. The Institute for Justice has 44 attorneys who work full-time fighting for the liberties of Americans who don't have the resources to fight for themselves when they're unjustly targeted by their government. These guys have litigated five cases before the Supreme Court and won four of them. Wyoming's government didn't know this when they violated the rule of law again. They had had a hearing uh, in July without letting me know about it. And we had already corresponded about eight times back and forth. You know, they knew everything. They had my addresses, they had my phone number, they had my emails, they had everything. And there was no attempt to contact me. So they had this hearing without me, decided since I didn't show up to forfeit my money, and I, I would have been there for sure. And so the case was supposedly closed. This hearing that we asked for was just to reopen it, saying that, hey, we had been in good contact, uh, you should have been able to notify me, so you need to reopen this case. And we got out there, and it turned out that the judge was on a leave of absence, his wife was ill. So there was a retired judge, military judge, an older guy, 70-some years old, I think, and he showed up there, and in the morning of the court hearing, all of a sudden, one of the senators of Wyoming was trying to call me, one of the House of Representatives was trying to call me. And this sudden rush of interest wasn't accidental. The Institute for Justice worked with the publication Vox to have a long expose on this saga come out the very morning of the hearing. The article had dropped. It was like, boom. Oh, my God. And there was reporters there and everything. And right before that hearing, because of this article and all this stuff blowing up, I believe, the judge pulled everyone to the side and said, hey, let's, let's just get this done. Let's not even worry about why the hearing didn't happen in the first place and not, you know, let's just get this done. We, we want no part of this now. And I think the attorney general in Wyoming, I believe he wanted it to just go away. It then took about three weeks for Phil's life savings to arrive back to him just before he and I met and hopefully in time to be able to make Smart Studios his permanent home. Hopefully he still is patient, you know, because I just got the check a few days ago. The bank is going to take a little bit to look at things. And, you know, I've had expenses in this last point of time, too, which I have to have to pay off now. So it's it'll be close. Phil's been busy in what's for now his studio, working away on his other dream. I've been really into electronic music. I started going to Burning Man, I think, seven years ago and really getting into some artists out there. At first, I didn't like it at all. It was kind of like, what is this? You know, I've been this guitar, old school, like old blues, like the oldest Ross blues, fife and drum tradition which is like the start of blues really and I think after like hearing my John Lee Hooker albums 20,000 times and Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath I just you get tired of that you know and I really started to get into electronic music and four years ago I started producing it on my own but I wasn't up to the state I wanted it at yet and finally this past year I started to produce stuff that I felt like was on par with what I was hearing and where I felt like okay now I have a voice a voice known 
as Star Monster. A different voice, but the same voice that is grateful to the Institute for Justice and especially their donors who could be spending their money on fine meals and yachts and instead to freely give of themselves to help hundreds of people like Phil that they've never met. It's just astounded me. It, it really has. All the people from the Institute for Justice, the people that wrote me on Facebook to show their support and started a GoFundMe for me. Like people are offering like, hey, I'll buy it and you can pay me back or like just it really restored my faith in humanity. When things like what had happened to me happen, it, it really makes you question the world you live in and just, God, you know, what, what am I living in? And, and it just makes you feel horrible. But I can't believe how many loving, supportive people there are out there. It, it really blows me away. And great job on that, as always, Alex. And what a story. And what a story about the rule of law. And by the way, we always say we support the vast majority of our law enforcement officials who do a fine and an honorable job. But we've always got to watch out for government power, folks. Always. That's what the Constitution was about. And look what happens in a situation like this. The leverage that law enforcement has and the way a rule can be used to raise revenue. And this is when we always worry, folks, when the law enforcement acts like a revenue agent. They're not. It should be about right and wrong and protecting the country. And what a job that the Institute for Justice does each and every day out there defending an essential right in this country, our property rights. Bill Parhamovich's story, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 